Hello, everybody, and we are back. Josh Thoughts official podcast coming in hot. NFL wildcard weekend is here, guys, and um, it's going to be crazy. This is one of the best years for NFL in a really long time, especially for the playoffs. There are really no dominant teams in the league, honestly. And I know you want to say Green Bay, but they're not physically dominant. They're just, you know, they're pulling the Patriots of late. You know, they execute everything. They have guys who understand how to do their job. And they've gotten dominant results, but a lot of the games they've won have been very, very close, could have gone either way if certain mistakes were made or plays weren't made by them. I mean, they got, I know they were resting people, but they got beat by the Lions at the end of the year. Now, the Lions aren't as bad as everybody thinks, but it just goes to show they can't just turn it off and just beat teams on autopilot. That's not really what they're what they're working with right now. So I do think it would be a surprise for them to make it out of the NFC. You know, a lot of the teams coming at their neck, coming at their throat, are teams they've had trouble with in the past, physically dominant teams, kind of like, you know, the Bucks and the 49ers who have the... Um, chance to give them some real trouble. And you look at the AFC side, I mean, the Chiefs are the closest thing to a favorite. They just got beat by the Bengals. We don't really know where Mahomes is at. Kind of always been a little bit different after that injury. You know, that first year he was unbelievable, could do no wrong. Now it's kind of come back around. He's sort of, you know, facing the more traditional perspective of most NFL quarterbacks, which is you've been good for a period of time. Now everybody's adjusted to you. Now you have to figure out how to do it a different way, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, looking in that AFC picture, I mean, the Titans have been kind of dogging it all year. Although, you know, give them credit for winning a bunch of games with close injuries. They might be one of the best set-up teams to go deep into the postseason. They got Derrick Henry coming back. You know, maybe he's fresh. Maybe he's kind of injured. We're going to have to figure that out. Um, but just looping back around on a lot of the NFL stuff that I already kind of have spoken about, I wanted to loop back around on Urban Meyer. The last podcast I made was maybe a day or two before he was fired. And I remember saying, as a plea to the Khan family, you know, do you like losing money? Because that's what you're going to be doing if you continue with this guy. I doubt they were listening to me, but it's clear they came to the same conclusion and they ended up, you know, jettisoning Urban Meyer. Rightfully so. I mean, to come into the NFL and just be completely oblivious to think you're going to do the same thing that you did in college. Like nobody's tried that before. Like this isn't a new, totally different level of competition, you know, making these same assumption and coaching decisions that you made when your team was clearly superior to every other team they would play on the field. I mean, that's fine in college, but you move to the NFL, you got to understand things are going to have to change. And don't even get me started with the kicking the guy and saying, I'm the head ball coach. I mean, people like Urban Meyer are, to be frank, are idiots that get drunk off the power of their position. And they have this such inflated self-importance. 
I mean, to sit down with your coaches and demand that they defend their resume one by one on how they're a winner. You, you completely miss the point of what a win is actually consisting of. It's, it's, it's consisting of individual quality presented by each individual. You can be Michael Jordan. If you're playing with the U10 basketball team, you're not going to win a single game in the NBA. It doesn't matter how incredible you are. It's just one of those things where the team always matters. Now, to what degree they matter in a person's success, that's, that's a different story. If you are winning, it's a good sign because clearly you're contributing enough to win. But it does, I mean, to, to say it like that, you're basically saying, well, if you haven't won any time in your career, then you're basically a loser. You're basically not contributing anything well. Contributing something to the team that makes them successful and winning are almost mutually exclusive. There's, especially in a sport like football, where there's so many people involved, so many different decisions have to be made. You know, you can go back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, the year before Tom Brady went there and they won a Super Bowl, the team went 7-9. and nine. So if you're using this reasoning of, oh, well, wins mean anything, well, then the team sucks. The whole team sucks. Everybody on the team sucks. They can't even win over 500 games. The coaches, the players, everybody's bad. The reality of the situation, there was a lot of quality on that team. Jameis Winston was the one throwing interceptions, making it abnormally hard for them to win. So when Brady comes in, totally flips that switch, everybody else, the quality of them can shine. Evans, Godwin can shine. And the defense, you know, now they're not on the field all the time. They're not being tasked with saving the game. And they're in a much better spot. And, you know, I just hate all the Urban Meyer excuse making that NFL people were out to get them, which is totally false. And, you know, or or you could say the, oh, well, people are too sensitive. You know, you, you can't do this, you can't do that, and, and all these bullshit excuses. So to even rub it in a little bit more about how much he effed up, I wanted to go to a couple new coaches who are actually getting it right, you know. So let me, I want to first talk about uh, Dan Campbell up with the Detroit Lions. So Dan Campbell comes in, you could say arguably the Lions at the time he entered the organization were in a worse place than the Jaguars, or maybe a you know parallel sort of tough situation. Now, Urban at least got a rookie quarterback who has some real talent. You know, Dan Campbell, he has Jared Goff, who I like Goff. He's going to be a backup in this league within a couple years. Um... It's nothing against him. I definitely think he's one of the top 100, 200 quarterbacks in the world right now. But it's just the guys that are in the league, the guys that are making a difference right now at the quarterback position are all significantly better than him in a few areas. So, anyways, putting that aside, the Lions is not an easy situation to come in with. They've been a team that's been struggling with culture over a long period of time. Dan Campbell came in, you know, we're going to bite their kneecap on the way up. You know, everybody made jokes about that. But I think a lot of people saw that that kind of hard-nosed football guy attitude can really translate to players and translate into the attitude of the team and the attitude of the organization. And I think that really, really fits with... One, because they're a rebuild. They know that it's going to be tough going forward. But if they want to, if Dan Campbell wants to make it out of this whole phase of his job and the, the team situation, 
they're going to have to push forward and be tough and get tough victories. And I think they've been one of the most unlucky teams this year. You know, they lost a game on the longest field goal ever. They lost another game on a field goal. You know, they were a team that played a lot of people really tough, um, surprisingly tough. And I think the draft choices they made, you know, Penny Sewell coming in, strengthening that offensive line. I think I think the Lions have a decently bright future with Dan Campbell. And for it to continue going this way, they're going to have to continue to, you know, be bold and intelligent with getting players on the team. Because you kind of, you know, there's a gap you have to overcome now. There's a skill gap. And a lot of teams are looking at this gap um, between them and some of the more talented teams in the NFL. And, you know, that's, I think at the end of the day, you know, football, it comes down to the talent and the coaching, right? So, and then you could say within that too, there's individual plays. There's always individual plays in every game that are going to swing the game in one direction or another. That's always important. Depending on the coaching, it can matter more or less because some coaches can give their players a little bit more of a safety net, but simultaneously that kind of can give them sometimes a little bit less opportunity to make an incredible play, depending on the situation. In any case, if your team, if your coaching staffs of two teams that are going to play each other are on the same level, it's going to come down to the talent. Now, if you have an edge, your talent in the coaching your talent could be a little bit less and you might still be able to overcome that and win, you know, but you can't necessarily count on having the best coaching in the NFL, especially if you're Dan Campbell, you're sort of new at this. Even if he's one of the best new coaches ever, that doesn't mean that he's Belichick. That doesn't mean that he's Sean Payton, these sort of older stewards of the game. So, you know, given that situation that all teams find themselves in, if you can't really count on your coaching to be better than the other teams, maybe you can, depends on where you are. You got to make sure that your players are up to snuff. You have to make sure that your players have the ability to either be better than the other teams that you're playing, which gives you the inherent advantage, or be equal. You know, if you're at a lesser talent perspective, you need the coaching to overcome that, or you need some brilliant individual plays to get victory. So this is what the Lions are working on. You know, they have Dan Campbell in place. Time will tell how good of a coach tactically he is. Um, but the things he's done with the culture, I mean, it's undeniable that there's something exciting brewing in Detroit. I mean, this year, I... Is the first year I ever felt like I like this team, the Detroit Lions. It's something I didn't like them. It's just Dan Campbell brings something. He has a charm to him. He has an authenticity to him. He has uh, that ability to bring guys together. And that is, you know, invaluable. If your coach can't bring the team together, I mean, you can look at Belichick. You might think Belichick doesn't have people skills. He brings people together. That's like the low bar to hit when you're a coach in the NFL. That's the bar that Urban Meyer couldn't hit, was getting everybody on the same page, bringing everybody together. I mean, when the thing came out about him cheating on his wife in a bar after he didn't come back with the team on the team plane, um, he tried to split the whole team up and have individual meetings with them. 
basically to try to retain some sort of pride or feeling of control on the situation. And it just goes to show all the underlying issues that are working here. Because, you know, with a moment like that, you need to own up. You need to call the whole team together. You need to get out in front of them and tell them, hey, guys, I fucked up. It's really funny. Maybe make a joke about it. Maybe make a little, like, you know, I would do something over the top because that's the only way you're going to get them back to reality. You know, the more you ignore it, the more they can't stop thinking about it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just human nature. But it doesn't even matter. We're, we're talking about how awesome Dan Campbell has been. And I do believe the Lions are building something. They are more progressed this year, for sure, than they were last year. And I think he got a little bit of something out of golf, too. I think he's getting a little edge out of him and kind of trying to, you know, get on his shoulder and grade on him a little bit. And I know it must, it's not, I'm sure it's not fun for golf in the moment. You know, it's it's hard in this league when you're not just naturally the most talented, the best in the league. And believe me, the man has natural talent, you know, oozing out of his body. It's just when you put him next to Allen, when you put him next to Mahomes, you know, that's when you start to see the gap. Um, but the only way, I guess, to, to shake yourself from that mediocrity is by having some kind of figure come in and and shake the nest a little bit. And I think Dan Campbell's done a good job of doing that, but still keeping, you know, letting Jared know, you know, we're we're together here. For anybody that doesn't know, the Lions had to basically, as a part of trading Stafford um, to L.A. and Goff to Detroit, they basically had to take Goff's contract on to get more. You know, it was kind of an opportunity, uh, an opportunity that prevented that presented itself. You know. L.A. needed to move Goff if they wanted to bring in Stafford. So to to allow L.A. to move Goff to the Lions, they gave the Lions an additional pick or two first-round picks to get that contract off their books. So the Lions, you know, they do have a bad contract with Goff at the moment. Now, if Goff can improve his playing significantly, contract won't be so bad. You know, how good or bad the contract is, is all relative to the performance of the player versus other players in the league at the same position making similar amounts of money. You know, you want to get a higher performance per position, per dollar than the other teams. And that's one of the ways that Bill Belichick has been able to keep the Patriots towards the top of the league, even through all these years when he's getting worse draft picks and no one wants to trade with them because they know they're good every year and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, at the end of the day, the more they get out of golf, the better. And uh, hats off to Dan Campbell for being an awesome guy and getting this team back on track. Now, before we move on from the new coaches, because Dan Campbell wasn't the only new coach who had a pretty good season. Um, we could look at Nick Sirianni in Philadelphia. This was another guy where coming in, kind of an odd interview situation, had a couple moments at the podium that were a little bit head-scratching. And let me put it this way. Um, 
because I don't want to be, I, I want to explain where I'm coming from with this. Most people looked at um, that the interviews that he did early on and kind of went, okay, this guy's sort of an idiot. Or at least he's not an eloquent speaker. I think that's what a lot of people thought. Now, me personally, I am a person who, as a child, I read a lot. So I have a pretty extensive vocabulary. You know, but it, it becomes one of those things where you, this goes with anything, with language, with anything. A lot of times people think, oh, well, the better, the more fancy you sound. That's just better always. And I think for certain crowds, maybe that's better for people that are very focused on, you know, outward product of the situation. Then maybe it is better to just sound fancy all the time. But I think when you really get into the weeds of is this person smart? Is this person good at what they do? I don't think you can take that sort of basically equate coaching to public speaking and pretend that those are the same things. Not to mention, to even go a little bit deeper into the whole language issue, let me put it this way. If I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, using the most insane vocabulary that I've ever used in my life, and I'm, you know, eloquently discerning between ideas and blah, 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 blah. You know, I could, you know, a bunch of people, a million people on the earth could go on and on and spit a bunch of words out and make it sound really fancy. But what's the purpose of all that at the end of the day? If I'm in a room of people and I'm speaking in such a way that only one of them will understand me, it's a failure on me as a communicator because I'm using the wrong vernacular. I'm using these words that nobody understands. You know, why as an individual, I should understand that if I'm trying to deliver a message, you need to speak to the people you're speaking to. And what I mean by that is you need to cater your message and your vocabulary towards the individuals who are listening to you. If I'm sitting in a room and I'm going on and on using the fanciest words ever, nobody has a clue what I'm saying. Well, who's the real idiot in that room? It's the person using the fancy words that nobody understands because they have the ability to communicate. They have the ability to share a message to those individuals. And yet they're choosing to, for the sake of what? Appearances, making themselves look smart. You know, they're choosing to go in this certain direction that then creates a rift in understanding between the individuals there. So I put that on the speaker, not on the listener. You know, that's a great trick. It's if, well, if I talk really fancy, if you don't get what I'm saying, then you're an idiot and I can just move on. No, no. The fancy speaker is the idiot for not conveying the message. So having that, you know, in the back of my head, a lot of the things that Nick said, maybe not the first time he kind of had a little gaffe at the podium, but like the second time, the speech about the flower. I could tell just by listening to that, you know, the dude isn't an incredible public speaker, but I, I don't really care about that because he's an NFL coach. I could tell he was a good guy, you know, because what he said, everything he said made sense. What he was trying to say, the message he was trying to get across made sense. Now, there wasn't a really easy way to say what he was trying to say. You know, maybe if he you know, read a crap ton more books and, you know, took a public speaking course or whatever, he'd be able to 
And not that I'm saying he needs to read books. Books don't make you smart, but I think, well, they can make you smart in certain cases, but I think they just give you more words to work with. I think if you read a lot of books, you get a lot of exposure to different words. But regardless, he doesn't really need that. He, it doesn't matter. We're not sitting here judging him based on his public speaking. We could, but that would be silly in a context where that's not really his primary job. We're sitting here supposed to judge him as a coach. And everything he said, even though maybe it wasn't the prettiest, most flowery language and best delivery I've ever heard, the message was good and the message was pure. And... You know, around this kind of time, too, as he's talking about planting the seeds and fertilizing, you know, he he was able to take the eagles and really implement a strategy and a way for them to play that really suits their players and gets the most out of the team. You know, and this is something that I think was shocking because if you're going off of this well, if you can't speak at the podium, you're an idiot mindset, then this guy should be a failure. He should be losing out of the league. And look at where we are now. The Eagles are in the playoffs, going to play the Buccaneers with a with a decent chance of, you know, upsetting in a way. I mean, maybe it's not a great chance because the Bucks do have that, you know, ridiculous run-stopping defense. So it could be a little tricky from that perspective. But at the end of the day, I'm still just insanely proud, not insanely proud, but I guess insanely impressed of what Nick Sirianni has done, you know, and I was kind of hoping he was going to go this way because I think it's a good lesson for everybody to, to not judge people based on how they speak, you know, necessarily. I mean, I talk to people about this all the time. A lot of people, you know, when you hear someone speaking English that's poor or you think in your head, you go, oh, that's broken English, whatever. It's all in a context. If that person's, if English is that person's first language they learned as a child and it's broken, that's tough. They probably have some mental struggles, problems going on because if you don't learn your native language really, really well, you know, that's kind of what that means because you're entrenched in it your whole life. So, for anyone out there like that who's having trouble with their first native language, I feel for you because I could not imagine how hard that would be. But for people who English is their second language, like you don't understand, a lot of people don't understand how hard it is to learn another language. You know, somebody speaking in what you might think is broken English you don't understand they are a they are a master at the at english basically they're not a native speaker they don't have you know maybe the accent right this or that but the amount of information and energy it takes to get to a level where you're speaking a different language in an interview or in this or in that whatever it is it's it's incredibly difficult so people often i see people where if english is their second language if they talk to people who only speak English, those people might think that they're stupid or might think that they're not smart or whatever because of the way that they speak. Um, and it's just simply incorrect. It's disingenuous. It's intellectually dishonest. Um, 
And this was a great example of a guy who, you know, I heard what he had to say. Everybody was, you know, yucking it up and on the laugh train about how, about how dumb it sounded at points. But I was kind of hoping, you know, maybe this guy can show us a little something different. And it's funny too, because like, you know, I'm a Patriots fan. Obviously I have a great disdain um, for the Eagles in a certain sense. Um, I had great disdain for the team that won Super Bowl 52. Let me put it that way. Great, great disdain for that team. But nobody on that team is really left. I mean, a lot of the players are there, like a good chunk of them. But, you know, at the end of the day, the coaches are gone, you know, a bunch of these other people are gone. And, you know, Nick Sirianni is really, he is somebody individually that I root for. Even if I don't root for the Eagles organization, I think that, you know, Sirianni, I was hoping he could show everybody that it's not all about being a public speaker, being an NFL coach. I mean, look at Belichick. I mean, and I'm not trying to say that what he does is a defense mechanism for not feeling totally comfortable at the podium. But even if it was, it was the most brilliant one. It was, it was I'm going to pretend like I'm going to war with you, but really I'm just, you know, I'm just going to war with myself because I don't want to be here. I don't want to be public speaking like this. You know, maybe that is a component to it. Even if it isn't a component to it, it just becomes a good defense mechanism for him. And I'm sure part of it too is he never wants to give every anything away. He never wants to give any bulletin board material. He never wants to make anybody feel, you know, anybody feel like they have an edge tactically or otherwise because of any situation. Um, so maybe that's the reason for it. Either way, hard to tell. But now I'm going to, I'm going to pivot over to a different coaching situation that I think is an absolute gaffe, an absolute debacle. And that is the Brian Flores firing in Miami. Oh man, what a huge mistake that was. And you know what? I know I just teased that, but I'm actually, I lied. I'm going to go and talk about Frank Reich and the Colts a little bit too, because that's another coaching thing that I think is certainly a mistake. Let me put it this way. I'm a Patriots fan. Obviously, you guys know that. I have been very, very, um, you know, involved in watching the Patriots over the years and the postseason, all these other things. So, you know, basically... I see everything through a lens of the Patriots organization. And when you're talking about the NFL and understanding the NFL, I think it's probably the best team recently to to view the NFL through because there's so many good teams, so many Super Bowl winning teams. You can start to kind of put together in your mind, well, what makes a Super Bowl winning team versus not? What makes a team that's challenging to play against versus not? When I'm watching the game with Bill, I can tell whether the, not not all the way, but you can tell to a degree 
as a person who's watched a million Patriots games, I can tell if the other coach is fighting with Bill or if he is just steamrolling them. Normally, he steamrolls them. And how that works is a lot of the stuff the Patriots do just works right away. A lot of the stuff the other team does doesn't really work. And then there's, you know, moments that defy that dichotomy. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like you feel an inevitability the Patriots are going to win. Now, there's certain times when you see, oh, wow, that worked against Bill. Oh, wow, that worked against Bill. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this now. And we seemingly were completely unprepared for it. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is you go back to Super Bowl 52. Speaking about the Eagles, my disdain for the Eagles. One of the huge, huge components of Super Bowl 52 was Frank Reich, the offensive coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, he came up with two totally different game plans, basically. Two totally different ways of attacking the Patriots. And so in the first half, he was doing this one thing that was all this way. And in the second half, he totally switched, started doing all these different types of plays in a, in a whole new sort of, you know, plan of attack. At the time, I remember thinking it was, it was brilliant. It was genius. I was like cursing it under my breath because obviously I wanted the Patriots to win, but it was one of those situations where that was a true moment of quality against one of the best coaches in the league. He stood shoulder to shoulder with Bill Belichick and they traded blows in that game. Um, and that's the funny thing about the Patriots. Traditionally, they have a coaching edge and a talent gap. Reich and Doug Peterson evened up the coaching field by being bold and unpredictable. And because of that, you were able to see the Eagles' talent gap. You know, the Eagles were obviously more talented than the Patriots. Most of the teams the Patriots had beaten were more talented than them. And that's consistently how they've played as of a lot of those years where, you know, the roster was kind of diminished because of years of greatness, years of lower draft picks, years of people not wanting to trade you good players. So at the end of the day, I believe Frank Reich is a good coach. And even with the Colts, you know, I still think he was a good coach. I still look at his game plan. And maybe he threw it a little bit too much. But at the end of the day, I put a lot of that stuff on Carson. And I, I hate to say it, but it's one of those things. I've watched some film of Carson Wentz over this season. Kurt Warner runs a great YouTube program. I definitely recommend anybody... Look that up if you're looking for some some breakdowns. There's a couple of people too. JT O'Sullivan also does a great um, he has a great YouTube channel that you know breaks down plays and reads and a lot of tactical aspects of the game. And if you look at the sort of openings that Wentz is getting, and then the decisions that he makes after that, you know, and and I'm. In the past, I've kind of been a, huh, 
Carson Wentz defender to a degree in the past. But this was the first year where I went, okay, you're the problem with the team. Now everything in the team is good, and you're the issue. And I think the tough part for him is the way he came out and the way he arrived in the NFL was so sudden and so dominant that that image always sticks in our minds. And I think you look at the situation now and um, he's going to be struggling to find a, to find a starting position. I think, I mean, the Colts, maybe they keep him. I can't imagine they keep Carson Wentz and, and have Frank Reich out. You know, I have to imagine that they're, they're going to be looking for a new quarterback situation soon. But that surprised me a little bit. To, to jettison Frank Reich when, when he had the team in position, you know, and, and I watched film of the Jags game, the Colts-Jags. The plays were there to be had. The plays were there to be had once – I don't know what he was reading. I don't know what he was looking at. I don't. Maybe Frank Wright does coach it wrong. Maybe he tells him the wrong reads to look at first. If that's the issue, get rid of Frank Reich. That's all good. But at the end of the day, I was surprised by that. And I think Reich, if you're looking for an offensive coordinator, if you're looking for a coach, I mean, tops, tops of the market there. I mean, not every day you can have an offensive coordinator who's beaten Belichick at his own game. Not not often. I mean, that Eagles game, the Eagles did not punt. Now, neither did the Patriots. But, you know, the Eagles were doing it because of game plan, because of spreading the ball around, because of taking advantage of Malcolm Butler not being played for the Patriots. Whereas the Patriots were doing it with pure... Tommy and Josh McDaniels just figuring a way to beat a more dominant defense over and over with little quick whatevers until the point when they didn't. When somebody on the Eagles made a play, nobody on the Patriots defense could make a play the whole game because, you know, one of their most important players who'd played 99% of the snaps all season did not play in that game still has to be one of the most arrogant mistakes of all time by the coaching staff to think that they could get away with not playing Malcolm Butler and still win. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, even I know people are like, oh, he wasn't playing well in the playoff. You're out of your mind and you're an idiot because it's not all about playing well. It's not all. It's about what are you going to? You're going to a person who hasn't been playing. You're going to a person who hasn't even been starting. You're going to a person who doesn't have the chemistry or the ability of a Malcolm Butler. So it's a completely different situation. And even if the person you replace, even if you replace Butler with someone who's the exact same physicality and ability as him, you're still at a disadvantage because one of the guys played the entire year with all the experience, with all the camaraderie of the other guys, and the other guy didn't. And not to mention... You create a rift in the team because half the team is thinking, why is our guy on the bench? The other half of the team is thinking, this is the situation. Let's just go forward and persevere. It's a fractured locker room. So so I think it was a mistake for the Colts to fire Frank Reich. But now we're going to bring it to the real obvious mistake, which was Miami firing Brian Flores. 
And I mean, this one is unbelievable. It's 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 like they brought him in and said, you have three years to win a Super Bowl, and if you don't, you're out. I mean, absolutely astonishing that they would even consider getting rid of him. I mean, let's, let's put it this way. First of all, 4-2 and two record against Belichick. He has a winning record against Bill over three years. Do you know how many people have that? Basically none. I don't think any in division had a record two wins up, two wins up on Bill. You know, admittedly, you know, the first game of the season, Patriots definitely should have won, just fumbled it away. But the, you know, the second game of the season, I mean, let me put it this way. Miami probably has less talent than the Patriots. And I know that in the second game, you know, one of the other ways you can close a talent and a coaching gap is you can do things that are very unpredictable and very tricky. Now, those things can also blow back up in your face, so it can become a detriment if it doesn't work. But using trick plays, using unexpected things, that can also boost you a little bit of a, you know, it can give you a boost. The problem, of course, is it can basically only work for one game because once you do it, people see it. Then teams are prepared for all your those tricks. So you need to either come up with different tricks, which you can't do on a week-to-week basis. True trick plays, scheme breakers, those things will be caught on to, you know. But at the end of the day, again, I see everything through the Patriots' lens. Brian Flores was the de facto defensive coordinator for the Patriots, Super Bowl 53. I think individually, he had a massive part in winning that game for the Patriots. His defense, variable defense with, with, you know, blitz fake, two drop out, four go in, over and over, you know, switching up the numbers, switching up the zones. He was always able to blitz in a way that was covered good in the back end. And that's always the the concern, is if you blitz, you're going to give up big plays. He was able to blitz and cover in the back, you know, or if he didn't even want to blitz, pretend he's going to blitz, send four, but he still sends the right four that it messes with your protection scheme up front. And then he has people dropping into zones on the back end and just, you know, doing it that way. I, I mean, let me put it this way. As a Patriots fan, I enjoyed watching and I enjoyed the security. I felt more safe with Brian Flores calling the defense than I ever have with Matt Patricia. It's nothing against Matt Patricia. It's just the way he calls the game defensively, personally. I think it's too safe. I think it's too reactionary. I think it's too much predicated on we're going to have a lot of people deep in coverage. We're going to have deep zones. And we're expecting to get a couple of picks every game. And even though we, we're, we're giving up yards like a sieve because we're playing on these zone defenses, we're going to play tough goal line D. And we're hopefully going to get a couple picks in the game, which is going to make up for the fact that we've been laying off so much this whole time. And it's all well and good. You know, it works great when the team gets picks. But when the team doesn't get picks, now all of a sudden you're letting up yards to let up yards. Now you're you're playing it too safe and getting, you know, having little seams, creases be found underneath, 
all these kind of other things. And, you know, that bothers me. So, and, and again, these people aren't the same. They change as time goes on. I'm hoping that Patricia can infuse a little bit more pressure into the equation. That, I think, is the brilliance of Flores. Is It, it felt like when, when he was behind the wheel play calling as the defensive coordinator, and, and I'm sure both of these guys, Patricia and Flores, were accentuated a little bit by Belichick when they were here. But he just had that thing singing, man. It was just when he had the – I can still remember the Super Bowl. I mean, the the Rams scored three points. It was – when they had the ball, I felt completely safe, completely like this guy has our team in his hands, and he's bringing us in the right direction. You know. So, you know, when he went to Miami, I was happy for him, but I was actually kind of mad because I'm like, this guy's a pretty good coach. I don't want him in the division with us. I mean, he might actually beat us. Of course, three years later, he goes four and freaking two. I was thinking maybe beat us a couple times, not four times out of six games. But yet still he gets fired. Why does he get fired? Well, to put it this way, you could say it's due to the performance. Now, if you want to look at the performance, you got to talk about the team of Miami. And I'll just lay it out for you guys. Tua is not that good. He's worse than Mac right now. And he's a year older. Doesn't mean he can't be better than Mac in the future. I'm just saying right now, Tua is worse than Mac. And Mac is a really impressive rookie who right now is probably like a little bit more mistake prone Kirk Cousins with a little bit of a smaller arm. And Tua is lower than that. And I'm not trying to be mean to him or anything. Still definitely one of the top, you know, 200, 300 quarterbacks in the world for sure. You know, definitely has a lot of, you know, experience coming from Alabama, all these things. It's just when you look at the the actual situation on the field, there's not a ton to work with there. And then you add in the fact that the rest of the team isn't really settled either. They had parts of the team that needed to be rebuilt on the defense and offense. And Brian Flores, really demanding guy, you know, he comes in there and he's expecting a certain level of excellence. If you want to judge the performance of the team based on him, you're kind of an idiot because I think that goes hand in hand with the GM. But really, I think this does come down to the GM, Chris Greer. And I think it comes down to him wanting to keep his job and therefore levying the mistakes of the team on Brian Flores. And what I mean by this is, you can look at it this way, and this is why it's very stupid to fire a coach and not the GM, to keep one or the other. Most situations, it's very stupid to do that. The reason is because, from the ownership's perspective, there's two things that make up the team. There's the coaching of the players, and there's the talent acquisition, the getting players in the door, the GM getting players in, drafting players that are good and are going to make the team at a good level. Now, those two need to combine together to create the on-field product. So if the on-field product is bad, it reflects poorly on 
one of those two people or both in a situation where you want to keep your job as the GM, if the talent on the field isn't as good as it should be, you have to blame that on the coach. Or maybe you want to believe it deep down. You want to believe that you were right about your picks, about your draft picks, about whatever. So when the product in the field isn't happening, you just say, well, the coach isn't using the players correctly. And not to mention the GM, because they don't work as hard or as many hours, not maybe not. In some cases, you could say maybe they do work as hard as coaches. They don't work as many hours as coaches. And the hours that they do work, or at least in the season, let me put it this way, in the season, they don't work as many hours as the coaches. And because of that, they have the unique ability of being around the owner a lot of the time. Well, during the season, the coach is on the field coaching, the GM is in the owner's box with the owner, telling the owner, hey, look at what this idiot's doing on the field. If I was him, I would do this, I would do that, and I would, you know, make it work way better. You know, which again, only an idiot would look at football from that perspective. Because if you're sitting there going, I would do this, I would do that. No, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Whatever you're saying, it's unrealistic. Whatever you're thinking you would do, you have no freaking clue. Because that would entail an actual level of of work, research, and desire that would make you into a coach. If you're, if unless you've been a coach before and then you're a GM, if you're just a GM with no coaching experience, you have no clue how to coach. You have no business talking about coaching. But I'm sure it doesn't stop them from doing it. And if the owner's as big of an idiot as Ross down in Miami, he might actually start to buy that bullshit that Chris Greer is telling him that Flores isn't doing the right thing on the field, that he isn't using Tua correctly, that he isn't doing this, he isn't doing that, whatever. It's one of those situations where um, Flores isn't even there to defend himself. And even if he was, he's not an excuse maker. He's not going to be whining. He's not going to be blaming it on Greer. I'm sure at certain points he expressed concern about the talent level of the team. I mean, the Dolphins right now are less talented than the Patriots. I can tell that based on two matchups. The Dolphins beat the Patriots off pure coaching. Watch those games again. You can watch the first game and the second game. The first game, the Dolphins are barely, barely hanging on. The Patriots fumbled the game away, going down to score a field goal. They were in field goal range, fumbled the game away. The second game, it took trick play after trick play, bullshit penalty after whatever, to get that game into a situation where Miami won. Still at the end of the game, Miami felt like, oh, we're trying to run down the clock and finish it. When you have that feeling as a team, that means that if the game was eight quarters, you get your ass blown out, which means that you're not as good as the other team. You're just, you know, striking while the iron's hot, and then you're doing this and that. That falls under trickery. That falls under coaching, not the players on the field are better. When the players on the field are better, you beat a team going away. You beat them and you go, if this game was twice as long, we'd beat you twice as bad. That's what being having better players on the field means. You know, and it can be, you know, coaching too. But if your players are worse on the field than you win, that's how you have to do it. You have to strike while the iron's hot. You have to use tricks. You have to do this. Flores did all of it. And yet he gets fired. And the one more thing I'll, I'll say about this, because this was the most infuriating part to me, really, 
really is. You knew something was going on with the quarterbacks. You knew he the reason he got fired had something to do with the quarterbacks. We've found out recently in the quarterback draft where Joe Burrow was selected the number one pick. The Miami Dolphins had a choice to make between Justin Herbert and Tua Tagovailoa. Anyone with any sort of football brains would understand Tua is wicked freaking hyped because he's from Alabama. And all the SEC idiots who only care, and I'm not saying people who like the SEC are idiots, but all the idiots who watch the SEC, of which there are many, many, who only think the quarterback matters, are losing their shit about Tua, tank for Tua, tank for Tua, all this bullshit. Didn't mean he was the best then, and he wasn't. And we clearly know that now. He was not the best college quarterback even then. Burrow was better. Herbert was better. And now it's that's starting to play out. But at the time, because he's at Alabama, because Alabama is so dominant, all that gets equated to him. Not saying he's bad. He was good too, but it, there's different. There's different levels of how good you are and how much of that is your team versus how much of that is just you. So with the entire public basically duped by the hype of Tua, you know, which is unfair to Tua, to be honest. He doesn't deserve this. To ha- this just happens to him. It's not his fault. I really feel bad for the kid because nothing is worse than the public thinking you're better at something than you are. And then you're forced to find out how realistic the actual situation is. You know, he didn't create the hype. He didn't run with the hype. It just, it happened to him, you know, and now he's stuck with the consequence of a, of a, of a check he never should have had to sign. You know, he never wrote the check. Now he has to sign it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, Chris Greer and the owner, Jeff Ross, wanted Tua. Flores wanted them to pick Justin Herbert. Now, this is where the infuriating part comes in, and I'm going to have to try to stay calm here. As the years have passed, we've clearly seen Flores doing everything he can to help Tua just to get to a normal NFL level. And I'm sure he isn't completely happy with him, but he always says the right thing at the podium. He always does his hardest coaching clearly to make Tua appear at his best and put him in chances to be successful and eliminate the chances where he can make mistakes and look really ugly and all this, you know, all this sort of stuff you don't want to see. Now, over those same few years, we've watched Justin Herbert with the Chargers explode into a an incredible talent, clearly one of the best out of that class. It's him and Burrow up at the top, you know, fighting. Burrow maybe has a little bit more of that nuance, a little bit more of that mental aspect of the game. Whereas Herbert just has the the outrageous talent, arm, legs, everything. Can launch the ball, you know, 60 yards through a pinhole. I mean, just ridiculous athlete. And then you have Miami. So you have a situation where just a few years earlier, 
You have Flores says he wants Herbert. You two say you want Tua. Now it's three years later. It has clearly been shown that Flores was correct. Herbert was a better prospect. Ross and Greer were wrong to want Tua. They were stupid to want Tua. In effect, at the position they were. They should have, you know, not that Tua isn't good. Tua, he's a good player. He's a great player. They should have picked Herbert. It's about who you pick over who else. It's not just about people being, you know, decent in general. They had the pick. They should have went with Herbert. They went with Tua. It was a big mistake. Instead of them going, instead of Ross and Greer, see, see what Ross should have done if he was an intelligent individual, um, what he would have done is looked at the situation, realized, hey, you know, me and Chris, we were wrong about Tua. You know, you were right about Herbert. Now, looking at the situation, understanding that what you said was right, I was wrong. But you're still a person. See, I'm, I'm speaking as Ross right now. You're a person, Brian Flores, who we brought into the organization. Tell us where we go from here. You're the one that was correct here. You're the one we clearly should have listened to at the beginning. You know, I'm sorry we effed that up. But we have you in the building still. We, we had an inside guy who knew that Herbert was going to be better than Tua. What a great asset is that? Somebody that can see things that I can't understand. Invaluable. Invaluable to an organization. This is how I really know Ross is an idiot because if you look at this logically, that's exactly what you want. You want someone in the organization who can supplement you when, when you do something wrong or when you don't know something. Instead, what they decided, instead of taking this guy and understanding his quality and his level by looking at how they had failed, instead, Greer and Ross have concocted this sort of fantasy fucking situation in their head where Tua is actually secretly better than Herbert, but Flores just doesn't know how to use him. Flores just isn't doing enough with Tua. Or we would see that Tua, so instead of actually recognizing their mistake and moving forward in a new direction that makes sense based on everything that's just happened over the past three years, they've decided to fucking double down on the mistake. They're doubling down. They're going, okay, let's pretend that Tua still is better than Herbert, even though we've seen with our own eyes it to be not the case. And let's get rid of the only guy here that was correct. Let's keep the two fucking idiots. Basically what they're saying is, we're if, if I'm them, thinking about it the way they are, they're going, well, Chris, you know, I'm Ross. Well, Chris, you know, you and I were right about Tua. Now Flores, he wanted Herbert this whole time. So because he wanted Herbert so bad, you know, he's just, he's not even giving Tua a chance to be successful. He's just going out there and letting Tua fail just to prove that he was right. Well, we'll we, you and me, but we will stick it to him. We'll fire him, get a new coach, and then we can prove that Tua was better than Herbert all along. And we are not the idiots here who have made a mistake. He is, in fact, the incorrect party. And this is how the lie gets spun. This is what they tell themselves so that they actually believe 
that what they're doing is correct because that no other explanation makes any sense. I mean, to, to learn, once you learn you've made a mistake, the more you avoid it, the more you run away from it, the more you hide from the fact you've made a mistake, the worse it gets. They're digging themselves into a deeper and deeper hole. And Ross, you picked the wrong fucking guy. You had a stellar coach, a worker, a guy who maybe he's a little tough around the edges. He shoots it straight and he knows what it takes to win a championship. More than I can say for anybody else in your organization. And yet you choose to go with Greer. You know, the the ear leech that's that's sitting around you and, and you know, slandering Brian Flores at any chance he can get. I mean, it's... It's incredibly sad. And, and me as a Patriots fan, I'm just over here fucking laughing because I thought we were going to have to play Brian Flores twice a year for like the next 10 years. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm hoping maybe we can bring him back as a defensive coordinator for, a, for an interim period. I mean, the dude's an absolute stud. Get him out of the division for all I care. I mean, it's fucking hilarious. It's, a, it's an absolute joke. If I was in Miami, I'd be calling for Ross's head. I mean, maybe not his head, but his job. You know what I mean? Like, Sell the fucking team because you clearly have zero clue how to make decisions. Um, so I'm sorry that got me, got me a bit worked up, guys. Just Brian Flores is a dude. He he is such a genuine, kind guy, and you know, I really wanted to see him do well. As much as it pains me every time he beats the Patriots, I know he's a great coach, and I know he's a great guy, and I know he deserves it. He spent a lot of years with the Patriots and from what I understand was not paid a ton of money and was not given a lot of recognition until the end of it. And I think he has the skill set to be successful, deserves to be successful um, in the league. And, you know, if I'm an owner, I mean, Broncos, Seahawks, bunch of, I mean, any team, I mean, Colts, it's just like, Take your pick. The dude's a stud. No, I don't think many coaches could do what he did with Miami in the years, in those past three years, with all the turmoil, all the roster issues, everything going on down there. The owner, who's clearly a fucking idiot, he's already let go of Tannehill. Tannehill's the number one seed. He let him go years ago. You know, it's just, it's completely embarrassing. I feel bad for Miami fans. Um... But at the same time, I think it's funny because it just helps the Patriots. It helps the Patriots and the Bills. It helps the Jets. Um, you know, Miami Miami really blew it on this one. Well, this one I'm going to call it, guys. You know, it's been a, been a great pod episode. Hit a lot of NFL topics. Really dove in deep with NFL coaches and coaching today. And um, I might release a... A postseason. I wanted to get a little bit more into the postseason, what's coming up today in the games, but I might just do a a reaction because we'll definitely get a get a much clearer picture after this weekend. So maybe I think I'll do a a pod after the weekend. But uh, anyways, guys, this has been the Josh Thoughts official sports podcast. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>